In the two previous parts of this series, Pastor Devo and Pastor Bev have begun the conversation by referring to stories about food in the Bible, but then ended up talking about taking care of one another. And fair warning, that's where my message is going to end up too. I can't help it. When I think about food, I think about other people. It's been ingrained in me since childhood. Some of you may be quite familiar with your parents' speech at the table, eat your food, because there are starving children all over the world who wish they could have this food. We don't have time to debate the lack of persuasive logic in that reasoning. Nevertheless, to this day, food makes me think about other people. And that is what we have talked about in this teaching series. Pastor Devo looked at the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis and reminded us that what makes us fully human is not the ability to cultivate the ground, but rather the ability to cultivate relationships. The challenge for us is to nurture relationships, and in so doing, we may become able to see the other, someone other than myself, and in this way, see something of God. There are so many things in our lives that stop us from truly seeing one another, from seeing the good in each other, the goodness of life. And in Pastor Bev's message from the story of Esther, looking at Esther's life and all that she went through in that story, we can see how it might happen that in spite of the food on the table, in spite of the people around the table, or maybe in our case, because of the lack of food on our tables and because of the people missing from our table, we are sometimes challenged and discouraged from seeing God's goodness in our lives. Is there any other way to respond to these kinds of challenges? Will our life story provide a legacy of compassion and hope in the way that we lived each day? And for today, Listen for a word from God in Luke 19, starting at verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. The Word of God. Can you picture it? Here's our tree. Most of us know this story. The crowd blocks this man's way to Jesus. And just like the crowd had done in the case of the blind man in Luke's story right before this one, they do not encourage him to see Jesus. Though this man has official status, power and wealth, the people treat him as an outsider of no social importance. Clearly, short stature is more than merely physical. He is treated like a nobody. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. As you probably know, in those days, men wore robes, basically long dresses. So, Zacchaeus, quickly, get down. Nobody wants to see that. Come on, I must stay at your house today. Verse 6. So he... Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He, Jesus, has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Now, in this story, the Bible verses do not mention a table or food or a meal. But in studying this story, I spoke with one of our professors at the Divinity School here at La Sierra University, who is an expert in biblical scholarship and who also has comprehensive personal knowledge about the customs and culture associated with that time period in that part of the world. 
and it was confirmed that the cultural background of this story and the norms of the Middle Eastern society would indicate that being a guest in this home would guarantee that a large meal was served and enjoyed. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. The grammar of the narrative here starts to become slightly awkward in this verse and the following. Zacchaeus addresses Jesus, and Jesus in turn addresses him in verse 9, but seems to speak of him in the third person, as we will see. Now, the phrase, half of my possessions, is significant in comparison to the story of the rich young ruler. Luke tells us a few verses before our story about this rich young ruler, where in that story, giving away all of one's possessions was being discussed. In either story, whether all or half, Luke confronts us with a drastic disposal of wealth for the benefit of the poor. The restitution that Zacchaeus offers is similar to the standard set by the law in the first verse of Exodus 22, where it says that one needs to return four times as much as what, was, what has been wrongfully taken. One biblical commentary describes this as the thank offering of a changed heart. For Zacchaeus, his changed heart expresses his love for God in his love for others. After all, if you read through the Gospel according to Luke, for those who are deciding whether or not to follow Jesus, the use of their possessions becomes a key gauge of their spiritual condition. It says that Zacchaeus stood, which may mean that he took up his stance with the formality of someone who is about to make an important announcement. He proceeded to give astonishing evidence of what a visit with Jesus had done for him by declaring the donation of half his belongings to the poor and a fourfold restitution to those he had deceived, cheated, and tricked. It seems as if his voluntary offer of restitution to every person whom he had defrauded was made cheerfully. Considering what he did for work and how he made his money, this was unlikely to be a short list. The visit with Jesus produced an inward transformation in Zacchaeus. His response was spontaneous. His first reaction, his first instinct in response to being with Jesus was to use half of his wealth towards meeting the needs of the poor and to make right the injustices of his professional occupation. As we read through the Gospel according to Luke, and with this story in particular, the issue of the practical application of how to use our money and our resources becomes unavoidable for any who would consider what might, what might be a natural and voluntary response from someone whose life has been transformed by Jesus and his invitation to the kingdom of God. If only we could listen in as Jesus talked with Zacchaeus. I wish that full conversation had been recorded. Verse 9, Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. First, let's notice that salvation did not come to this house because Zacchaeus had finally done a good deed. Instead, it says it was because he was a son of Abraham and the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. The Bible commentary suggests various possible reasons for why being a child of Abraham is mentioned, but verse 10 clarifies and brings all of the possible meanings together. Even though a descendant of Abraham, a Jewish person, has become one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, 
It is the Good Shepherd who seeks, finds, and saves the lost sheep. Today, salvation has come to this house because Jesus has come to this house. Salvation walked in the front door. Now, when we talk about salvation, there are some questions to ask. Salvation from what? From what do we need to be saved? And why can't we save ourselves? Why do we need a Savior? This is something for us to think about carefully. From what are we saved? And why can't we save ourselves? What about Luke's reason for telling the story in this way? Do we think that Jesus means that Zacchaeus will live eternally sometime in the future? Although this may ultimately be the way that we understand salvation, is there yet still a meaning that is more immediate? Especially in the context of the rich young ruler, who also appears to be somewhat of a lost sheep, is a partial meaning of the salvation mentioned here. That Jesus has come to save Zacchaeus from himself, to save him from thinking only about himself. Salvation from the customary human attitude that prompts us to think things like, whatever I want, I take. Mine, it's all mine. Who cares? I'll cheat and lie if I need to. Whatever it takes to get what I want. The ends justify the means. As long as my family and I are okay, then all is fair. Isn't the game to outsmart and take advantage of anyone who gets in my way? I get mine. If I win, it's because others are weak and they deserve to lose. I watch out for number one. Are there any of us that, like Zacchaeus, need salvation from that way of life? I want to be saved from that way of life. In our world today, where human dignity is being crushed by increasing selfish aggressiveness, the concern that Zacchaeus has after meeting Jesus for giving support to the poor and for making restitution for his wrongs still remains a most urgent need for our world at this time. How do I overcome my self-centered self-love so that I can truly love my neighbor? And another very important question is, how can I effectively love my neighbor so that my neighbor is able to truly experience the benefits of being loved? If we take love of our neighbor seriously, we will be concerned, therefore, not only with the purity of our intentions, as important as that is, but also with the consequences of our actions on the well-being of our neighbors. It appears meaningless to be merely preoccupied with our good feelings and the purity of our good intentions for others if we are also indifferent to the actual consequences of our actions on our neighbors. This will simply be more self-love in disguise. A serious intention to love our neighbor can only become real and true by means of effective actions that will actually help them and be concerned with the lasting results of such effective action. Nor can we quickly dismiss the question of structural and societal injustice when we can plainly see is causing so much of human suffering today, simply on the reasoning that I as an individual cannot do anything about it. What I as an individual cannot do, perhaps we can do together. For I must remember that the very justice I enjoy from the societal structures in my community is not the result of my own individual action, but that of the collective actions in which we all participate. As social creatures, we are essentially interdependent. We do not earn or possess or consume nor produce anything by our own isolated, unaided effort 
We survive only through the network of interdependent, interdependencies within the economic system as well as the structures of politics and culture. Before we can call somebody lucky or unlucky, before we can make our distinctions between hard work and idleness, we are all already mutually dependent. This mutual dependence is a most basic and foundational dimension of human reality. In fact, it is precisely because we depend on one another for the basic essentials that are necessary for our human dignity that the possibility of oppression and exploitation also finds its way into the process. The real possibility of hostility, oppression, and alienation among different groups of people throughout our communities seems to be increasing as diverse cultural groups in their uniquely foreign and distinctive otherness are being permanently brought together in our new and growing global market economy. We can neither remain simply segregated and distinct from one another anymore, nor should we simply discard all of our unique diversities in order to all become the same at the expense of our cultural backgrounds and our individual human dignity. Our only alternative is to realize a solidarity of others. And this solidarity with our fellow human beings, this way of showing love for our neighbors is how we show love of God. That is how we can find our intrinsic unity. We are serving God when we try to further what is best in the world, both in ourselves and in others. Is it even possible to serve God in any other way more directly than by taking care of one another? Don't we believe that God can receive nothing from us, that we cannot act for or upon God through our finite offerings and rituals? If we meditate on the great commandment of love, don't we come to the conclusion that to love human beings is the true sign that you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus? This Christian love in solidarity with one another is based on our self-renunciation. It does not discriminate. It is the universal equal love of human beings in our common humanity. This solidarity refers to the universal humanity in all of us, which is more fundamental than all of our particular differences. Our neighbor is unconditionally our equal. Each person is your neighbor on the basis of equality with you before God. This countercultural self-renunciation, which appears to be Christianity's essential form, is itself possible only through the transformation that results from our relationship to God. And it is through the gospel of Jesus that God gives us the perspective to see through and see past all of our differences, which are essentially relative anyway and merely illusions of our culture. By customary standards, human beings are all different and unequal because they are necessarily marked by distinctions in birth, position, circumstances, education, and class. It is only in relation to God that we can be considered equal. All human beings have been equally created by God and equally saved by Jesus. Only before God there is no distinction because our distinctions mean nothing before God. And it is our relationship to God that gives us not only this perspective, but also the internal motivation to overcome the temptation to focus on our differences and instead appreciate the equality we have before the eternal God. Self-love cannot be combated by self-love. We need salvation from this vicious circle of self-interest and self-centeredness. This is why we looked at Zacchaeus today. The story shows how he met with Jesus first and then the change happened. 
Zacchaeus doesn't have to repent and repair everything before he gets to be around a table with Jesus. Sometimes we have that sequence backwards. We don't know what happened to Zacchaeus after this. There is even the possibility that Zacchaeus didn't have to quit his job to follow Jesus. He only chose to do it differently. One visit with Jesus and he pledged to change his life in order to help the poor. We all need a friendly visitor in our lives sometimes. Hopefully you were able to have a good, satisfying meal this week. And as we continue into the holidays with the food and meals around our tables, listen and pay attention. Are you being inwardly motivated to pledge because of your love for God and because of God's love for you that you will use your resources in a way that demonstrates solidarity with your fellow human beings, brothers and sisters in God? Amen. <laughs>